Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books in Economic and Business History channel of the New Books Network. My name is Paula de la Cruz Fernandez, a host on the channel. Today I interview Dr. Shane Hamilton, Senior Lecturer in Management at the York Management School at the University of York in the UK. There he teaches strategy and business humanities. He is the author of Tracking Country, The Road to America's to America's Walmart Economy, Princeton 2008. And he's associate editor of Enterprise and Society and co-editor of the book series American Business, Politics and Society of the University of Pennsylvania Press. He has published articles on food and agribusiness in different journals, such as Technology and Culture, a Strategic Entrepreneurship Journal, History of Retailing and Consumption, Enterprise and Society, Business History Review, and Agricultural History. Today, our interview is centered around Professor Hamilton's latest book, Supermarket USA, Food and Power in the Cold War Farms Race, published by Yale uh, University Press in 2018. Supermarket USA tells the story of how businessmen and influential people in agribusiness and the grocery industry, along with government officials, especially of the Department of Commerce in the U.S., sought to modernize to make modernized agriculture and the idea of the supermarket um, tools to bring communist nation closer nations closer to capitalist America. What's more important in this book is uh, the discussion about the power and symbolism of supermarkets of their abundance of the choice they bring to food buyers, supposedly, and how this was intended to convince or even um, to outrage consumers in nations like Venezuela and Yugoslavia, um, the former Yugoslavia, to stand up against limits uh, to consumerism in the late 1950s as the Marshall Plan unfolded in Western Europe and as part of the uh, legacy of FDR's good neighbor policy of the mid-30s and 40s in in Latin America. I'd like to mention, too, that Dr. Shane Hamilton is the web creator and administrator of the BHC's website, and thus uh, um, he's my partner in all digital-related business of the Business History Conference. Um, Welcome, Shane. Uh, It is such an honor to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. Can't wait to talk about my book. Before we go into the book, uh, please tell us a bit about you, your academic career, um, a historian in a management school, an American in the UK. Yeah, I'm uh, always out of place, I guess. I uh, I grew up in rural Wisconsin, never had any vision of becoming an academic at all. Nobody I knew had ever done such a thing. Uh, went to the University of Wisconsin and studied history, working particularly with Colleen Dunlavey, <clears throat> and became just passionate about history of technology and history of capitalism, which wasn't really a term at the time. 
um, but what Colleen Dunleavy had been working on for many years. And she encouraged me to apply to the PhD program at MIT in Science, Technology, and Society, uh, which again seemed crazy to me, but I did and got in and went there to study and uh, got an interdisciplinary degree in history and social studies of science, technology, and society. Uh, came out of that PhD program with a very interdisciplinary kind of sensibility, but uh, worked in a history department at the University of Georgia for 10 years and became a pretty long-standing member of the business history conference. So became increasingly identified as a business historian. And then an opportunity came up to move to the United Kingdom, and uh, I just managed to end up in a, a management school where ever since I have uh, worked to think through what it means to be a historian teaching future managers about capitalism in kind of a big sense. Um, so how did the idea of this book came about of Supermarket USA? In many ways, Supermarket USA comes directly out of my work on Trucking Country, my first monograph, where Trucking Country is about the distribution of food. I, I know it, much of it is, of course, about long-haul truckers and country music and stuff like that. Uh, but it's also ultimately about the transformation of agribusiness in the 20th century and how food moved from farm to fork, if you will. And of course, a crucial part of that story is supermarkets. And in the research for that, I kept running across very bizarre, I thought, uh, documents, both in archives and in newspapers and public uh, media, stating such things as food is a weapon, and this is how America will win the Cold War. And I was struck by exhibits like the 1957 Supermarket USA exhibit, where the U.S. basically airlifted a 10,000-square-foot fully operational supermarket into what was then Yugoslavia to demonstrate just the, the power of American capitalism to deliver abundance to consumers. And so it was, it was sitting on the back burner for some years. I was like, I need to do something with this. And then I went and explored a bunch of archives in various different countries, and Supermarket USA is the result. Great. Um, so your book starts with what you call the farms race, uh, which is America's war uh, war for food distribution dominance, where certain actors, as, um, especially the AMP company, uh, compete to become leaders in this expansive food grocery system that really had its roots in the 19th century, right? Um, and this race then becomes deeply entangled with the U.S. Cold War uh, with the USSR in in the mid twentieth century. So tell us a bit more about you know the, the first part of the book, how how all this starts. Well, yeah, I set it up by looking at A and P, uh, and in truth, I draw very heavily on a, a really excellent book on A and P by Mark Levinson, also a longtime member of the Business History Conference. Uh, and he looks very carefully at uh, the Great Atlantic and Pacific tea companies rise from a kind of small. Uh, retailer of groceries to, by the mid-20th century, the, the world's largest supermarket chain. Um, what I'm really focusing on, I, I, I do look at AMP because, of course, it is important that it was the world's largest retailer of food in the mid-20th century. That's, that's very significant. But what I'm interested in, in many ways, is thinking outside the box, if you will, and how supermarkets, which, of course, pretty much all of us are familiar with, it's a very common aspect of our daily lives, today. Uh, but in the 1930s, of course, they were just beginning to exist. And the enormous buying power that supermarkets could exercise, especially chain store supermarkets, 
they could reach into their supply chains and transform whole systems of food production. So that's when I say I'm thinking outside the box, I was really interested not so much in what happened inside retail stores, which people like Tracy Deutsch have done excellent work on gender dynamics inside the stores, but more what was happening on the farm fields uh, that was producing the food that enabled those supermarkets to deliver food at low cost and at standardized quality. That's that's important, right? The, the whole chain um, and how the supermarket uh, transforms that. And then uh, you go into into the case of Venezuela, which I think was um, very interesting. Where basically, um, actually, now that you you talk about that chain, um, that chain was not built already. So that chain of industrialized, integrated, coordinated uh, food chain had not been built before um, before the supermarket, right? Before the U.S. Uh, comes in with this idea of the supermarket and and offers to bring modernization to to Venezuela through that um, but lots of challenges emerged uh, when when this attempt uh, happened so can you tell us a little bit more about the case of Venezuela yeah I mean I, I think that's one of the more fascinating stories in the book that uh... Yeah, as you say, Venezuela did not have a very robust agricultural system developed in the kind of mid-20th century. Uh, of course, Venezuela had a long history of commodity export, uh, particularly cattle, uh, was one of its most important agricultural products of the late 19th century. But then, of course, petroleum was discovered and it became a petrostate uh, and various leaders of the country transformed the economy in such ways that it became highly dependent on petroleum exports and food imports. Now, Nelson Rockefeller, an American uh, businessman, political figure of the 20th century, who became entranced by Venezuela, uh, looked at it in the 1940s after having done some work with uh, World War II propaganda campaigns from the U.S. and saw this kind of fractured agricultural system as a problem and also the, the inequalities that having to import food from places like the United States created. And so you had this grand vision of bringing American-style supermarkets and American-style factory farms to Venezuela and just wholesale transforming the whole food system of the country with a very explicitly anti-communist political agenda. He believed that if food prices could be driven down, if you could have a stable food system of domestic supply uh, and people could go shopping in air-conditioned, you know, pastel-colored supermarkets, uh, that the kind of radical politics that he was so concerned about, uh, being a kind of centrist liberal, uh, might be tamped down in Venezuela. Um, they got the supermarkets. Actually, by the 1960s, uh, the Rockefeller chain of supermarkets was the largest retailer in Venezuela, bigger than Sears Roebuck, which is substantial. Uh, it was highly profitable. It was turning over profits that uh, American supermarkets actually would have uh, enjoyed, uh, having such high uh, margins. Um, but the industrial agricultural systems basically did not work. They had they made a number of mistakes, including locating farms very far from any city where you could actually deliver the food. The distribution system just wasn't ready. Um, applying fertilizer at, you know, at an enormous scale without really thinking about the consequences. Relying on farm managers who didn't speak Spanish and so couldn't actually work with local 
producers or distributors. So there were many errors in terms of the agriculture, but the supermarkets were a success and actually laid the foundation for other efforts of Rockefeller Enterprise to take American supermarkets around the world, including places like Italy, as Emanuela Scarpellini has written about. Oh, interesting. So is there any other, um, is there in Latin America, is there any other uh, case of of this process where, um, you know, one one supermarket brand or uh, system goes and and establishes it its system in the in in the country and well once the rockefeller supermarkets took off in venezuela uh by the mid-1950s they were doing quite well and so they began uh scouting out sites in in other countries now brazil had also been a target of the rockefeller enterprise and i should it's called uh, the international basic economy corporation so it wasn't just about supermarkets they had this grand vision of kind of building the base economies particularly in latin america uh, to, again, with a very explicitly anti-communist agenda. Uh, they targeted Brazil, but in Brazil, they didn't actually focus on the supermarkets at first. They focused more on agricultural production, uh, which, of course, Brazil being a major agro-industrial state that was more successful. Uh, Peru, uh, there were other countries that were targeted. Um, Argentina, by the 1960s, had a chain of these supermarkets. And there was an explicit goal to not just monopolize the trade, but actually encourage other food retailers, including local entrepreneurs, to take the supermarket model and build it up uh, to transform the food system more generally in these countries. And to some extent, that is successful. I mean, even today, and of course, there are you know political reports uh, denigrating the Venezuelan food system, and many of them are accurate. Uh, but there are supermarkets in Venezuela and there are, you know, indigenous local uh, entrepreneurs who have established major agribusinesses supplying. Great. Uh, so then your book goes into Yugoslavia um, and the images that uh, you include for this chapter are great. And uh, of this like exhibit um, in 1957, and they say so much about how the U.S. wanted to sell uh, capitalism through the idea of having a lot more and always available um, of every single product of the uh, family's pantry. Um, it was an exhibit uh, that, how long did it did it stay um, open? And it was in Zagreb, right, in uh, 1957. We, uh, can you tell us a bit more about this, this case, please? Yeah, I mean, it was part of a, an international trade fair that uh, was regularly held in cities like Zagreb uh, on a yearly basis. And the U.S. had a chance to put on a pretty big exhibition and was actually invited by Yugoslavian organizers to put on some kind of big show. Um, this is at a moment, kind of importantly politically, when Yugoslavia under Marshal Tito was pulling away or had pulled away from the Soviet Union. So it was still a socialist state with a communist political ideology, but it was increasingly trying to um, de-align from the Soviet bloc. And so American diplomats and American businessmen were very much attracted to Yugoslavia as a chance to kind of demonstrate the superiority of American capitalism and American democracy in hopes of kind of gaining allies in the socialist world who were not aligned with the Soviet Union. So there's a lot at stake in putting on this exhibition. And there was actually consideration of um, building an American style kitchen, uh, much as would happen in 1959 when the U.S. put on a similar exhibit at the uh, American National Exhibition in Moscow, where Richard Nixon and Nikita Khrushchev had their famous kitchen debate. 
But that was shot down, and instead there was a supermarket uh, sent to Yugoslavia in 1957, so-called Supermarket USA. And this really was meant to shock and awe Yugoslavian consumers into realizing what they didn't have under socialism and what they could have under capitalism. And it was expensive. They had to airlift in fruits on a, a daily basis. Uh, from the United States because they deemed the the local fruit too small and unimpressive. So it was, uh, you know, 10,000 square feet. They had bird's eye frozen foods in enormous freezers. One, uh, I think a, a graduate student wrote in a response to the exhibit that he had never, he had heard about frozen foods and, and knew that they existed. But until he saw them, he just, he actually couldn't believe it. So it was a it was a propaganda coup in many ways, right? But you also say that um, that officials um, in Yugoslavia were actually um, taken by the idea, right? I mean, the, it was successful in in that um, in that they could you know they could think of a way of making um, socialist Yugoslavia do something similar, or. Uh, mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, for me, one of the things that's most interesting about that specific exhibit, as well as the, the Venezuelan experiments, was the way in which uh, important figures, including business people, realized the connection between supermarkets and their supply chains. So the interesting thing for me about the Yugoslav official response to Supermarket USA was not they weren't shocked and awed. They're like, well, yeah, you know, we actually have a pretty well functioning economy. Uh, we like to have abundance as well. We just prefer socialism. Uh, and they could very much envision supermarkets being socialist. You know, they they follow a lot of socialist principles, right? Kind of mass economies, mass distribution, trimming excess and, you know, creating efficiencies to produce abundance for all. Um, but what they were most interested in was, well, how could you use the centralized buying power of these big food shops to reach back into the agricultural landscape and force farmers to industrialize. Because, of course, that's also a very socialist project, uh, is the goal of transforming kind of petty agriculturalists, petty producers into, you know, full socialist producers for the greater good of, of the people. And this is a longstanding problem in Yugoslavian history, from the perspective of socialists, at least. Uh, that there were many peasants who were very committed to small-scale localized production, where th what they wanted to do was maintain uh, a sense of belonging on the land. They didn't want to necessarily produce commodities for export uh, to large-scale commercial enterprise. For the last two chapters, so you um, organized your book in in a chronological order, and the last two chapters going to the 60s and 70s. and um, I'd like to talk about those chapters, uh, also referring to this idea of business and, and power. Um, the, the last two chapters of your book play with words in a very intelligent, intelligent way, at least in the titles of these uh, uh, chapters. You use the words food chain uh, and free enterprise together. And then um, in the last chapter is food power and uh, you know and, and and global and globalization. So, how is agriculture in the seventies and eighties uh, at the center of America's expansive um, and far-reaching goal to bring the world under its umbrella? And how do these concepts of power and global and of free but chained, um, I suppose, uh, play? Um, 
play a big role during this um, uh, last decades of the, the part that you cover in your book? Right. I mean, this is one of the central ironies that I explore throughout the whole book, really, is that by the mid 20th century, American supermarkets were being upheld as this, you know, weapon of American consumer capitalism and of democracy. So that, you know, this idea that they physically embodied freedom, freedom of choice, individual freedoms and rights, right? So if you imagine going into a supermarket, that is the feeling that we often have, right? You go in and there's all these choices. And, you know, as long as you have money to afford, but, you know, the supermarkets sell goods at, at low prices. So many people have this ability to afford all the goods on display. But that whole system, that, that consumer experience is built on a limiting of choices outside the box. Farmers have, you know, increasingly tight standards that they have to meet. Uh, you know, one example I have is in the early 20th century, there were, I think, some 200 different varieties of apple grown in New York State, a major apple producing state at the time. By the mid 20th century, there were just a handful of apples being produced because that's what supermarkets wanted to buy. You know, one apple for one part of the year, another one for another part of the year, and so on. So they could have a constant supply of apples. But they wanted them standardized. They wanted them to look basically the same throughout the year. Uh, so that kind of transformation of whole agricultural landscapes doesn't sound very free. And so in the 1950s, when American propagandists are going around the world declaring in places like Venezuela or Yugoslavia or even in the Soviet Union that, you know, American industrial agriculture and, you know, family farming is, is the, the, the backbone of democracy and it's all about freedom and choice, there's a deep irony to the ways in which actually what was being promoted was an agribusiness system based on constraints and on very large corporations controlling whole supply chains. So that the food chains chapter looks at the ways in which American supermarkets promoted this idea of so-called consumer sovereignty, a very popular kind of economic theory of the time that consumers basically dictated the terms to big businesses and that big businesses actually didn't have any power at all. They were beholden to individual consumers. Uh, there's a lot of critiques of that theory, but it, it you know, you can see the ways in which it would high, uh, resonate for supermarket leaders. And uh, then the final chapter looks at the, the use of the phrase food power, which really emerges in the 1970s. People like U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Earl Butts under Nixon touted this idea that what made America powerful, even if other countries had atomic weapons and large military defense systems, was grain and American abundance of agricultural production. And so it wasn't just supermarkets that, that could be exported around the world to transform hearts and minds, but actually grain and things like the, uh, the great grain robbery of 1972 when the U.S. tried unsuccessfully to use grain as a diplomatic tool with the Soviet Union. Um, thank you, Shane. So before we, uh, we conclude, can you talk, so this is a transnational project, a transnational um, research process, right? Uh, what... What did it entail um, to write, uh, I mean, to research in different countries, in different archives? Uh, what type of sources are the main um, sources that uh, the reader will find in your book? And But also, 
tell us a bit about you know how one how a historian uh, produces transnational history. <laughs> you know, I think my answer to this is that uh, I'm I'm not good at it, and I have nothing to to offer because honestly, I'm not sure it is very transnational. Um, Unlike some of the work that others have done, including yourself uh, or one of my uh, former PhD students, Tori Olson, I did not spend a lot of time, you know, outside the U.S. thinking about kind of non-U.S. perspectives. The the whole book really is it's Supermarket USA. It's about American supermarkets and about American business leaders and American political figures uh, taking, you know, American business practices and ideas around the world. I'm not sure that's as transnational as, say, Tori Olson looks at policymakers in Mexico going to the United States to learn about what agricultural you know, policymakers are doing there and taking it back to Mexico and introducing new ideas. And, and then Americans going to Mexico and taking the ideas and policies back to the U.S., right? Like that's transnational, that direct kind of movement back and forth. So, you know, I, I think in some ways, um, I have to admit, you know, a deep humility that I just, I don't know that I'm capable of doing that kind of really quality transnational work. That's interesting. I, I do, I mean, this idea of America in the world, I do believe is is part of, you know, of this history of globalization that, that you know, whether we want it or not, requires research of um, resources of people that have wanted to transfer. Uh, I mean, whether it's Mexican officials in the U.S. and back to Mexico, um, I, I I do believe that uh, <laughs> having you know officials going to Venezuela and all these corporations doing work um, based in in other countries is is definitely um, part of this transnational history or global history that. Um, Mm-hmm. So, well, it's interesting for me being in the United Kingdom in a management school. So, you know, I for the ten years I was at the University of Georgia, where I was hired as a 20th century U.S. historian. That was my, you know, my job was to teach and research 20th century U.S. history. Now, you know, I teach strategy, and of course, in teaching strategy, one of the things that's very obvious is that all, nearly all, in fact, I think out of the top 20 global brands, you know, like 19 of them are American, you know, giant transnational corporations are by and large American corporations. So that's, that's important. The power they exercise is important no matter where you live. However, you know, the news I listen to and the kind of culture I live in does not just focus on America all the time, right? Like it's not the only country in the world. It's not the only people in the world. And the ideas and even the business practices of that country are not the only ones. And so, yeah, I, I think it's it's important to take American power very seriously. But I'm increasingly tempted to you know find ways to to think beyond that. Absolutely. Well, thank you, um, Shane. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Thanks so much for having me. I recommend uh, that you visit that everyone's. Everyone visits Dr. Shane Hamilton's website to learn about all his publications. And also, uh, please keep listening to the Economic and Business History channel of the New Books Network. Today, I interviewed Shane Hamilton. I am Paula de la Cruz Fernandez, Fernandez, and until next time, bye, everyone.